Welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Reorg's James Holloway speaks with Christopher Maloney, mortgage strategist at Bank of Oklahoma, about the normalization of treasury yields, the Fed's historical monetary policy, and its effect on the current macroeconomic climate and what the future holds. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd like to hear feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, October 30th. Welcome to the Reorg Primary View, where we bring you everything you need to know about the world of fixed income, leverage finance, mortgage debt origination, primary markets, and more. I'm James Holloway from Houston, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome back Mr. Christopher Maloney, MBS mortgage strategist, excuse me, at Bank of Oklahoma Financial Markets. Chris is back with us, I think, for the third time, and he has over a quarter century of experience in the industry, starting with Prue's NASDAQ Trade Desk, after which he managed fixed income portfolios at both Lehman Brothers and then Newberger Berman. And he was over a decade a mortgage strategist, a master of that arcane art, for over a decade at the, on the first word desk at Bloomberg News. His MBA was issued by NYU Stern, and right now he is writing a book, his second, concerning the creation of the Federal Reserve System. I would also recommend his first book, which is on Amazon. Chris, welcome back. Nice to be back. Thanks for having me. And uh, okay, I was just thinking back earlier today. And uh, in 2016, uh, we were sitting beside each other and there was a day in, I think may have been July, I was sitting at staring at a chart of the 10 year yield and I was kind of hypnotized. It was going lower and lower and lower and boom. I remember it hit like 147 and then just kind of stopped. And I remember looking over at you, you were playing Angry Birds or something. And I said, we'll never see 3% on a 10 year treasury again. You just kind of shrugged. And of course I was wrong, but uh, anyways, Monday, but, but during the, the, uh, the pandemic, we hit a yield of, of even lower, something like half a percent. Um, but anyways, this past Monday, we got 5% on the 10 year treasury. How did we get here from there? Well, in order to answer that, that requires one to look back at the ideas that influenced and still influenced the Federal Reserve's behavior since the great financial crisis arrived back in 07, 08. I mean, the prevailing idea that has a vice grip on the Federal Reserve, you know, and people in general, to be honest, is that money is wealth. So the more of it you have, the better. Essentially, the idea is that we can create money, wealth, out of absolutely nothing. And that's the idea that drives easy monetary policy. So keep in mind that it was Ben Bernanke in December of 2008, uh, he was Fed chair at the time, who decided all on his own, the board only later retroactively agreed to what he'd done, he kicked off QE and zero interest rate policy. The the age of highly aggressive monetary experimentation started with that decision of his. The fact that this was done 
despite, and Bernanke openly admits this, he supposedly had no idea as to what its potential direct effects on markets would be, what its potential side effects might be, or even how to get out of it. That's a damning indictment to my mind about how monetary policy is run in this country. Uh, to be blunt, it's dangerously unanchored. This flood of newly created purchasing powers set off by QE and zero interest rate policy it drove uh, Treasury yields to abnormally low levels. You know, the 10-year was about 50 basis points in the summer of 2020. Uh, with the end of QE4 and the tightening of monetary policy, just due to the explosion of inflation it created, yields are rising again to a more normal level. And that's how we've arrived at where we are today. Okay, well, thank you. Um, now, you mentioned normalization, and I've heard some very, very smart people say that, that uh, all that rates are doing is returning to a, a historical range. So they're normalizing, in other words. And so um, if that is actually the case, does that mean that the Fed did its job brilliantly and everything is going to return to how it was before the financial crisis? Uh, you know, the Fed's had a very heavy thumb on the scale for the last 15 years. And by many measures, you know, the record levels of debt, the housing affordability crisis, growing inequality, which is exacerbated by asset inflation and the outbreak of high inflation, it's hard to congratulate the Fed for its performance this millennium. You know, but to be honest, it's also hard to condemn them for their failure. Uh, central banking under a fiat currency standard, it really is an impossible job. Without any anchor to your monetary system, and inflation targeting is no anchor whatsoever, they're really driving with their eyes closed. Uh, the only thing holding back the inflationary impulses of the Fed is the prudence and foresight of those who run it, not to mention of the politicians who ultimately control the bank. But it's really no matter because reality eventually wins out. A zero interest rate policy, for instance, eventually defeats itself by the inflation and price distortion it unleashes. It was inevitable that investors would eventually hesitate to purchase bonds at minuscule yields, you know, negative yields even, that they would eventually notice that the U.S. federal government is seemingly unwilling and unable to balance the budget. With deficits forecast to be, I think it's one and a half trillion dollars per year from now into infinity, people were bound to demand compensation for that risk. Uh, the pricing of risk across global markets was not given the respect it was due for some time now. This normalization we're going through is merely people coming back to their senses. Okay, well, well, thank you. And uh, now we've heard higher for longer a lot. It's sort of like uh, green shoots. Uh, I mean, that's I think what that's one of uh, Bernanke's catchphrases back from that time you mentioned. But um, you know, besides deficit, when you consider nothing more than just like the waves of new issuance coming at us, just a figure in the trillions of dollars, um, you got to wonder how much higher the higher is going to be. Um, so besides the issue of compensation, how much longer is longer? Well, I believe that Powell's reputation should be held to account for QE4. And that was by far the most aggressive of all the QEs. You know, in fact, it, it grew the money supply by 42% in a little over two years. And that sparked the rise in prices we've seen across the globe. 
he should be commended for having the wherewithal to halt the madness and tighten money in response to inflation. You know, because Powell's a trained lawyer rather than econometrician like Bernanke and Yellen, he doesn't seem to be wedded to the idea of flooding the economy with ever more credit every time markets hiccup. So he had the, um, let's call it an outsider's view of things that enabled him to see past all the mathematical models, use some common sense and realize that QE4 was the problem. So he terminated the program. So now his focus is on putting the inflation genie back in the bottle. He has consistently pointed out correctly in my view that inflation is public enemy number one that everything else in the economy flows from that. If you don't have a handle on inflation, nothing else matters. And he repeatedly points to the abject failure of the Fed in the 1970s to do what was needed to be done to bring inflation back under control. And he promises not to make the same mistakes that the bank made back then, which back then they would cut rates as soon as inflation took any step down, which led to inflation turning back up, requiring yet more rate hikes. So this is where the idea of higher for longer comes from. Uh, the big question is, will he enjoy the political protection necessary for him to see this through like Volcker did? I don't know. Okay. Well, th well, thank you. Now, now I know you're a mortgage guy, but, but do you have any sense of what this all means? I mean, this like shift higher in the rate structure means for the bond market or just uh, the cash flow of companies in general? Well, you know, broadly speaking, higher rates by their very nature are going to push some companies over the edge into insolvency and send those who hold their bonds into the court system in the attempt to get their funds back. You know, how many companies that will happen to and how soon it will happen, it's really impossible to know with any degree of accuracy, but it's certain there will be some. You know, it's like... Take a look at the Bloomberg Bankruptcy Index, for instance, fell to its lowest level this millennium back in 2022, just as the inflation in this country was surging to its highest since the early 1980s. Uh, CPI hit, it was just over 9% in the summer of 2022. Now, the lack of bankruptcies during periods of extreme inflation has been a notable part of all inflationary episodes throughout history. You know, during the Weimar Republic in Germany in the early 20s, for instance, it's one of the most famous uh, instances of monetary inflation in history. Bankruptcies in Germany essentially disappeared during that time. Now, the absence of bankruptcies during inflationary episodes, that's due to the timing mismatch between when you purchase your inventory and when you sell your inventory. Now, of course, this reverses once inflation is brought back under control. And with the Fed step, stepping on the brakes now, and they begin the tightening process back of back in March 2022, the Bloomberg Bankruptcy Index has risen by almost 300%. Now, before you start running around like your hair's on fire, keep on mind, though, that this was from an extremely low point. And the index is still about 33% below the average seen this millennium. So while it's likely to go higher over the course of 2024, keep in mind that in aggregate, U.S. corporations did what the U.S. Treasury failed to do during the period when QE4 was crushing borrowing rates. 
U.S. corporations extended their debt maturities out long. So this is going to help companies that did so ride out the storm of any impending recession and help them handle the higher rates that the Fed's normalization efforts have brought about. Okay. Now, uh, last question. I saw a, a rather nice chart this week, and it, it, it told me that some 67% of the economy is driven by the consumers and consumer spending. And, you know, of course, then there's housing, the American dream and everything. Now, what do these higher rates mean? What's it going to mean for uh, the consumer and his uh, consuming? Well, you know, I think it's important to realize that our consumer spending makes up about two thirds of how we calculate GDP, which we incorrectly use as a measure of economic growth. It's more accurately a measure of economic activity of consumption that's completely different than economic growth. You know, the hint that it's not a measure of economic growth is that we include government spending in it. Government spending is certainly necessary up to a point, but to include it within your growth calculation is absurd. But you know, getting back to consumer spending will certainly be affected by higher rates, most particularly for those households that are propping up their spending through the use of debt. You know, credit card debt in households right now is at record levels. It's just over $9,000. But, you know, averages conceal as much as they reveal. You know, it's important to not go all zero hedge when looking at data for this reason. You know, first off, not every household has credit card debt. And of those that do, not everyone has a large outstanding balance. You know, for instance, if instead we look at the Federal Reserve's U.S. household debt service ratio, and that takes into account totally required household debt payments to total disposable income, your average U.S. household actually looks, you know, again, this is an average, but your average household looks better than it has for much of this millennium. You know, in addition, we live in a country that worships material things, that lives for today and thinks nothing about the long term. You know, the ideas of Keynes, unfortunately, have had their effect on us. You know, you look at the U.S. savings rate, it's now at 3.4%. Because it's the lowest it's been this millennium and well below the average of 5.7% seen over that time frame. But, you know, especially if unemployment really starts to tick higher, people will eventually pull back due to prudence and higher rates. But it's hard to ever count out the American consumer. We're, we're just incorrigible spendthrifts. Okay, well, there it is. Thank you very much, Mr. Maloney. Always a pleasure. And I'm uh, very sorry about that tough season for the Mets. So that's all from us. Thank you for listening to the Blue, the Reorg Primary View. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For Inquirer coverage this week, we take a look at Rite Aid, Hertz, LTL Management, Norwegian Air Shuttle, and more fallout from Bankruptcy Judge David Jones's resignation. Judges and legislators are grappling with former Southern District of Texas Bankruptcy Judge David R. Jones's resignation after he failed to disclose a personal relationship with former Jackson Walker partner Elizabeth Freeman. In a letter, nine U.S. senators said that prison health care debtor Tim Care Services bankruptcy proceedings have been called into question by the secret romantic relationship between former Judge Jones, who served as the court-appointed mediator, and Freeman, counsel for Tim Care's predecessor, Yes Care. The senators asked directors to Tim and Yes Care to describe Freeman's role in plan negotiations and list the individuals at Yes Care and Tim that were aware of Ms. Freeman's romantic relationship. 
Judge Michael B. Kaplan greenlit a critical settlement between the Rite Aid debtors and McKesson, resolving a fight over McKesson's purported termination of the party's multi-billion dollar supply agreement just before the pharmacy company's bankruptcy. The agreement was approved on an interim basis in light of concerns voiced by the court and the U.S. trustee that a suit to be formed official committee of unsecured creditors should at least have a chance to take a look at the deal before final settlement approval. Counsel said that McKesson has already shipped approximately $230 million in goods to Rite Aid since the cases were filed. A three-panel judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals to the Third Circuit heard oral argument in the long-running Hertz make-whole premium post-petition interest litigation and took the matter under advisement on Thursday. In the appeal, indentured trustee Wells Fargo Bank and U.S. Bank challenged bankruptcy court decisions denying note holders' claims to post-petition interest at the contract rate and redemption premiums. Hertz is the latest post-petition interest and make-whole disputes have reached the circuit courts after other key decisions on the issue in recent years, Ultra Petroleum into the, in the Fifth Circuit, PG&E in the Ninth Circuit, and Latin airlines from the second circuit the u.s court of appeals to the third circuit has agreed to hear appeals of the bankruptcy court ruling dismissing ltl management's second texas two-step case circuit judges patty schwartz el felipe restrepo and thomas l ambrose signed an order accepting the appeal which was lodged by ltl and the ad hoc committee of supporting counsel the three judges will also be on the panel handling the merits of the case judges ambrose and restrepo were on the panel that concluded ltl's first bankruptcy should be dismissed Justice Barry Ostrager issued an order denying defendant Aries Management and Loan Trustee Wilmington Trust motion for summary judgment in New York State court suit filed by the Hudson Transport Real Estate Master Fund and Carval. In the suit, Hudson and Carval contend that Wilmington Trust breached its fiduciary obligations as a trustee for Class B certificate holders by conducting a $250 million foreclosure sale of 10 Norwegian Air Shuttle AC ASA aircraft in April 2021 at the direction of Aries, a Class A certificate holder. Acumen and Air Methods file for Chapter 11 this week. WeWork prepares to file before year-end, and Alvaria and Explorer hire restructuring advisors. Acumen Inc. filed Chapter 11 last Sunday in the Southern District of Texas through a prepackaged plan and restructuring support agreement. The plan would eliminate more than $450 million in funded debt, extend the maturity of certain remaining funded debt by two years, and provide $130 million new money cash infusion from sponsor Stonepeak Magnet Holdings LP, which also holds 100% of the Series A unsecured notes. The RSA signatories include holders of 69.6% of 2025 secured notes, 79.9% of 2028 secured notes, 100% of the revolver, and 34.2% percent of Acumen Inc.'s common equity. The debtors will pursue a dual-track plan and marketing process for a superior transaction. At the first day hearing, Judge Christopher Lopez approved on an interim basis a $75 million junior secured dip facility from Stone Peak, unlocking the full amount of the facility. The judge also approved the disclosure statement on a conditional basis at the confirmation hearing for November 29th. Air Medical Service Provider Air Methods entered Chapter 11 in the Sundrick of Texas with a prepackaged plan based on an RSA with First Lien Lenders and equity sponsor American Securities, which owns 94.7% of the company's equity. The RSA is also supported by an ad hoc group holding approximately 71.6% of the prepetition secured loan claims and 66.8% of the prepetition unsecured note claims. Debtors say they already have the requisite support to confirm the plan and expect to emerge by year-end. At Tuesday's first day hearing, Judge Marvin Isger granted interim approval of a $155 million dip provided by members of the crossholder ad hoc group, giving the debtors access to a $40 million new money interim draw. The court will consider whether to approve the remaining $40 million of new money financing and a $75 million roll-up of pre-petition loans at a final dip hearing on November 15th. WeWork is preparing to file Chapter 11 before year-end as the New York City-based office space company's onerous debt burden is becoming increasingly unsustainable. 
The ultimate timing of the filing is still uncertain and under negotiation. In-court restructuring plans may change pending the outcome of lease negotiations between WeWork and its landlords. Ahead of the potential WeWork restructuring, WeWork analyzed the company's cash flows, particularly those associated with rent and lease termination costs. At its current scale, WeWork appears to burn cash on each workstation it operates on average, and its attempts to reduce capacity this year results in elevated cash burn due to termination fees and other cash restructuring payments associated with exiting leases. To access WeWork's full in-depth coverage of WeWork, please reach out to a reorg representative. Alvaria, a call center workforce management software provider, formerly known as Aspect Software, is working with Kirkland Analysis Council to explore capital structure options to address a potential liquidity shortfall. The Westford, Massachusetts-based company has been burning cash this year because of higher debt service payments and customer churn following an employment data breach as a result of a ransomware attack. Revenue has also declined due to weaker bookings, putting pressure on liquidity, which came in at $61 million as of June 30th. Explora Woodstock, Ontario-based provider of rural broadband services, is working with Perla Weinberg Partners as financial advisor to address potential liquidity issues. Financial advisors specializing in liability management and restructuring have been pitching term lenders. The Stone Peak-owned company faces significant subscriber declines and increased competition from providers such as Starlink. It's also trying to upgrade its internet and satellite offerings to capture market share, but the capital expenditures needed for network and fiber build are putting pressure on cash flow and liquidity. Top Brothers stories this week included Purdue Pharma plan supporters call on Supreme Court to affirm Second Circuit non-debtor release decision. New studies suggest bankruptcy traumatic for employees but does not spur mass exodus. Rainier's July Perry Plus term loan asset suite provisions provide broad claim on asset sale proceeds. Excel model for modeling double dip loans now available on Reorg. High yield market issuance cools as volatility uncertainty dominate. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events, including earnings releases, can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. Here are a few highlights. On Monday, closing arguments in the Celsius confirmation trial kick off. The debtors faced several objections at the start of confirmation. Over the course of the trial, however, they were able to resolve some of them, including ones from the SEC and Koala 2, an entity associated with former CEO Alex Mashinsky, among others. Last week, the debtors filed a seventh plan supplement that included several revised agreements, including revised litigation and plan administrator agreements, and a revised schedule of retained causes of action that shows additional claims against FTX, among other parties. Bittrex also has a confirmation hearing on Monday. Customers and creditors of the crypto exchange are expected to recover in full under the liquidating plan, which incorporates a $24 million settlement with the SEC. Bittrex filed for bankruptcy after the SEC charged both Bittrex and its international arm with operating as an unregistered securities exchange, broker, and clearing agency. Bittrex is now using the bankruptcy process to exit its U.S. operations. On Thursday, the Westco and Cora debtors will seek extensions of their exclusive periods to file and solicit a plan by 120 days. Non-participating 2027 unsecured noteholder Langer Mays filed a statement and reservation of rights opposing the extension. Langer Mays argues that no progress has been made in plan negotiations, that the debtors have failed to pursue litigation that would provide unsecured creditor recoveries, and that the debtors are controlled by their sponsor Platinum and participating noteholder Senator. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, including a schedule of earnings releases, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. 
Thank you again for tuning in to the Rearg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on our Rearg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.